Hello and welcome to episode 62 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod Murray at the helm and promising to do everything in my power to avoid any and all discussion of Patrick Reed and the 10th hole at Torrey Pines. I suspect I'm going to fail. I have a co-host who's keen to chat about it. I think I speak for plenty of us when I say we've had just about enough of all of that. Apart from anything else, it's overwhelmed some other really interesting and important stuff elsewhere in the game, two of which involve one of our two guests on today's show, and one of them, the main reason we're here, Matt Goggin and Mike Clayton coming up in just a moment to talk the excitement that is Seven Mile Beach, and in Clayton's case, what was an extraordinary weekend on the bag of Elvis Smiley at Rosebud Country Club. But first, in keeping with the introduction pecking order here on Good Good, it's hello to regular co-host Adrian Logue. Logue, some interesting stuff to chat about today, and a couple of very interesting blokes to do it with, which is the best part. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this chat. Um, we had this all this sequence of podcasts all planned with Harley last week, where we are going to talk about golf courses and uh, architecture on existing courses versus building new courses as a lead-in to this discussion. And then Patrick Reed's situation <laughs> happens. So. Happens and everything we'll gets... And, of course, well. Elvis Smiley's fantastic yeah. performance. Well, just the whole tournament. Just this past we'll, weekend, so we'll come to that yeah, we want to talk about that. First, to Melbourne, and a voice not unfamiliar to good, good listeners. He's fresh off caddying for one of the nation's most promising young players in some years, who put in one of the most impressive performances we've seen in some years. It's Mike Clayton Clates, young Elvis Smiley. You can play a bit, eh? He's not bad, Elvis, yeah. Is he sitting across just, the table there from you? Do you need to be careful he, what you say here? Yeah, I do. He's, um, he's, he's off to the – Sam Groth's taking him up to see his mum. His mum flew in to Melbourne yesterday. He's been staying with us at St Andrews Beach. He's off to watch the tennis today. He needs a day off. But, um, yeah, he played the first day we were – he was he was six over after 14 – and then we made two birdies and got out with 75. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Um, so, yeah, so he was shot 75. The first, it, was a, it was a really windy, just kind of made a mess of the par five in the front nine and three-putted a couple of times. And it was even par after eight the second day and made just went on a five, five or six birdies on the back nine to make the cut by one shot. And then made 18 birdies on the weekend. He had two three-putts. He three-putted the 18th on Saturday and three-putted the 11th hole yesterday. 63-63 weekend is pretty impressive. which was pretty good. um, (laughs) Might be understating it, Clates. Not your specialty generally. Uh, Pretty good. uh, I mean, it's interesting. We were talking about it when we were playing. It's almost a party trick now to bomb the ball a long way because everyone does it. These guys stand up and smash it forever. And you think that my guy, that guy must be a good player, but the other thirteen clubs are just not very good with them. And Elvis is great with the other thirteen clubs. I mean, he hits proper iron shots in close to the hole. He's a great wedge, wedge <laughs> player. Last two holes, last two holes yesterday with the pressure on, he had two wedge shots. You know, from 100, 106 yard, hundred and six meters at seventeen, eighty four meters at eighteen. Hit them both to four feet. You know, perfect shots, great control. So it's an intangible, and you can't explain it, can you, Glads? But he's got it, doesn't he? Yeah, and yeah, it, no, he's very good. It is anyway, hard to, to. We need to make sure he doesn't get a big head, but um, <laughs> that's exactly. Yeah. Golf will make sure he doesn't get a big head, Clates. You and I both know that. In fact, anyone yeah. who's been around the game for a while will know that. From the golf mecca that is the Mornington Peninsula to the emerging golf mecca that is Tasmania, already home to one of the world's best public access courses in Barnburgle Dunes, the other end of the island state received big news last week that the Seven Mile Beach project near Hobart has chosen a design team and that construction will begin, I think, later this year. The man who's been the driving force behind that project for the best part of two decades and actively for almost a full decade is former US Tour player Matt Goggin, and he joins us also, Matt, 
really seriously, congratulations first up. That is an awful lot of your life to devote to something and to finally <laughs> see it coming to fruition must be fantastic. Thanks for taking some time to chat today, mate. Yeah, no, no thanks for having me on. It was a, um, yeah, it, it's been a bit of a dream for a long time and uh, to actually have some work commence down there and to be kind of at the, the finish line of all the the other stuff and get to do some of the fun stuff now and actually build the golf course. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it, it is exciting stuff. Just before we move on, Matt, I was thinking about Elvis and a stunning weekend's play and an extraordinary talent, obviously. He's got all the tools and he's not the only one. There's a lot of a lot of kids around the world, or a number of kids around the world are in that position. You've been kind of in that similar position at the start of what looks to be a really promising sort of career. What sort of advice would you give a kid in Elvis's position at this stage of life and career? Um, I, I think it's a big difference between amateur golf and being able to prepare for, you know, individual tournaments or to set a schedule, a light schedule compared to what you're going to be as a professional. I think the big adjustment is, okay, now I'm going to do this 30 weeks a year, 35 weeks a year. And, um, just how you're going to deal with the, that mentally really, because there's a lot of ups and downs. There's a lot of times when you're playing tournaments where you don't feel great and you know, your game doesn't feel great, but you've got to not let it affect your you know, you're, you're the global position or idea that you've got that, you know, this is my career and I'm in it for the long haul and, and to not get those sort of ups and downs of your confidence really get you into too much of a rut when things don't go well. While, while as an amateur golfer, you tend to um, have only a few big tournaments a year and um, it's just a little different way of approaching it. So when he does get that opportunity to turn pro, it's just, you know, being able to to maintain your confidence over a full year playing 30 tournaments as opposed to 10 or 12. Two of my favourite things professional golfers have ever said to me in interviews, one came from you, one came from Pete Senior, and they're both touched on by what you mentioned there. You said it on a State of the Game episode once, talent is just the entry fee. There's not a bloke on the PGA Tour who can't play, so if you're there, (laughs) you're good enough straight up. And the one that Peter Senior told me talks directly to what you were saying then is it's not your good golf that defines a professional career, it's your bad. The better your bad golf the better a player you are. Now, those days when you yeah. could shoot 75 and shoot 72. And well, Tiger spent a decade and a half, didn't he, turning 75 into 72, 71, and sometimes 69. Yeah, I think I think a good example, actually, is Adam Scott because he's the sort of guy who can shoot 80 and it doesn't bother him. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, he can have a terror. Like, you know, he doesn't do it so much now. But say 10 years ago where, you know, he'd go out and have a terrible week and you think, oh, geez, Adam's struggling. But it would not affect his his belief in himself or the overall overall trajectory of what he saw his career was going to be. He never turned it into one, two, three, four bad weeks. And then all of a sudden it's a bad few months and you start questioning what you're doing, you know, and you start looking at coaches and, and all your preparation, all that sort of stuff. Well, Scotty was just amazing at being able to just to completely dismiss a bad weekend or a bad week as if that's not who I am. I'm an awesome golfer. Yeah. You know, I, I might have bad weeks, but I'm a great golfer. It's a hell of a mental trick, isn't it, Clay? You spent a lifetime you know, chasing a white ball for a living. It's an extraordinary thing to have achieved to spend 25 years playing professional golf, making a living at it. It's not as easy as it looks from the outside for the rest of us, is it, for sure? No, and it always amazed me, guys guys who would have played terribly one week and come out and play really well the next week. I was never any good at that. And, um, they would just wipe off a bad week. And, yeah. But, you know, I, I think if you're Adam, you just have a look, Have you know, if you were struggling, just... Go and have a look at your film on the video and go. <laughs> video you know, of your own golf you know, league. Yeah, you know, it's <laughs> just, just never that in the mirror. far away. 
Yeah. Just walk past a mirror and you yeah, just exactly. have a mirror, a bank account. I've <laughs> always felt sorry for those around Adam Scott. What the hell do you buy him for birthday and Christmas? He has literally got everything. There's nothing. <laughs> he's got money. He's got the looks. He's got the golf swing. He's got everything. You're right, actually, Matt. I remember asking him. Oh, I think it was he had a bad start in the Australian Open, Scott, in the first round. We asked him in the press conference. He was four over through nine. And I said to him, mate, there's five markers who would be headless at four over through nine. How do you get around it? And he was very calm and explained how you just got to trust it and know that you're capable. And I remember thinking to myself at the time, you're never going to you're never going to play off five, Adam. You got the wrong attitude. <laughs> you're just not going to get there, son. I think you ended up finishing third that week. Not yeah. dissimilar to what Elvis did this week and what you just outlined there, Clates. Uh, poor start, but overcome and fireworks at the weekend and away you go. Before we come to Seven Mile Beach, which is extraordinarily exciting, Clates, is the tournament we've just seen at Rosebud, you were there, potentially one of the most important we'll see all year in Australia or for quite some time, just for the format. Ticks a lot of boxes, doesn't it? Played at a terrific golf course that most of us didn't know was a terrific golf course. Men, women, amateurs all playing together. The players did their bit, obviously. It was a thrilling final afternoon. I mean, you couldn't look away if you were watching it. Um, could be really important. In the same way that the Vic Opens being combined was a really important milestone in golf. We were playing with Marcus Fraser yesterday walking down the fourth hole. I said, there's no reason why you couldn't have 30 of these in Australia. $150,000 prize money. Um, it was a perfect kind of mix at the end yesterday. I mean, I was obviously, I wasn't, I obviously wasn't watching it, so it was hard to really know what, everything that was going on. But with Suo Elvis, who's the best young player we've had since Adam Scott probably, and um, Brad Kennedy all fighting it out in the end, it was, it was a great mix of, different sorts of players. Uh, I thought the, the women's tees and then the course they played worked out pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah, but the idea was to have a pro and amateur and a woman fighting it out. That was fantastic. Yeah. Were, were there any holes where they could have altered the par for the ladies? Clay? Well, we did the Jeff Ogilvie tournament a couple of weeks ago and the girls played, because I always think women's golf, they play the tees way too short. They're way better than they give them credit for. And, we had the girls quite a way back, but they played a past seventy, past seventy-two, and the guys played past seventy. So, um, Suo's seventy-two tied with Jeff Ogilvie's seventy in essence, uh, and I thought that's that was probably a better way to do it. But it worked out well last week. Gets Same a bit confusing for TV, that doesn't it? She had seventy-two, he had seventy, but they've tied. That would all be yeah, a bit hard for yeah. the scores. Just on that, we will come to Seven Mile Beach, Matt. You've waited. 20-odd years. You can wait another couple of minutes. I'm good. I'm good. Uh, I think, did Suo play with Matt Miller yesterday, Clates, and would they hit at about the same distance? Well, I haven't played with Maddie for ages, but Sue hits the ball. She hits it. um, She never hits it short of me. So if I had a good drive, I can get up to her. But most of the time, she's like five or ten yards past me. Mm -hmm. So um, Matt's kind of I assume Matt's okay, – everyone's longer than me, so I assume he's longer than me. But she can get it out a decent way. You know, she can hit it to 50 or 60 yards. Yeah, indeed. It's so a- she wouldn't have been that far behind him. But um, in the first two days with Elvis and Jeff, uh, you know, it, it, it played really well. You know, it wasn't like she was hitting first on every hole by any means. No. Were there any- but the class- her classic was, well, the second day she was playing really well. She got to the eighth hole. She was like – three or four under for the day, pitched it into eight feet and four-putted it from Ooh. eight feet. Mm. Ouch. I was like and, – and, and shot 65 for the day. Yeah, that's right, yeah. 
So she got back. Uh, well, the first day, Jeff was 64, Sue was 73, Elvis was 75. So you would have got some money on... Um, <laughs> those two finishing ahead of Jeff. Yeah, that's right. You those know. two finishing ahead of Jeff after giving him 10 shots yeah. to start. Good odds about that. So, yeah, no, fantastic. And I agree with you. I think that just the entire concept, look, it had the advantage because of COVID of having some bigger names in the field than you would get most years on a sort of a year-round basis if you did this around Australia. But the concept is strong enough to grab the imagination, I reckon. Matt, you've played more than your fair share of 72-hole stroke play golf. Does something like this appeal to you? It's still 72-hole stroke play golf, but it does mix it up and it's a bit different. Um, I think it's got more to do with what's the goal of the event mm-hmm. um, because it's very difficult to compete globally these days. The money involved, um, the amount of sponsorship you need to put on an event that's going to run opposite a PGA Tour event or a European Tour event or even a Japanese Tour event is, is all of a sudden, you know, it's getting beyond um, our local market. We might have one or two of those. But then we have to probably look at, well, what's the goal of the tour as a whole? Like, what's it trying to do? Mm-hmm. And if you can answer that question, well, then maybe it might be with a lot more developmental tournaments, a lot more um, different format tournaments, and, you know, produce the springboard that gives people, you know, the, the opportunity to experience playing with better players, experience playing maybe in some TV, in, in, in um, and then you know, that bodes well for them going on and becoming great world-class players. I mean, that was sort of the springboard back in the, when I was growing up, was I got to play 12 or 14 Australian tour events. Some of them were big tournaments, some of them were small, but they were all on TV. Mm -hmm. You got used to going into the the press room or the media room. You got used to having cameras behind you. You got used to all those sort of things that when you get to the PGA Tour, all of a sudden they're not a big deal. And you're quite, you know, it's normal to you or you've experienced it. And, um, you know, that helps you, you know, deal with playing in these massive tournaments. I think that's good for for our players for sure. Because it's not the golf, is it, Matt? It's all the stuff that surrounds it. The golf, by the time you've got to that level, is a given. You know how to play golf. Yeah, I mean, going back to that sort of talent is the entry fee type thing is just you don't have to do anything more than you're capable of. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like you have to go and play at a level you aren't capable of. It's not like... You know, it's just playing at the level you're capable of in an environment where it seems like there's more pressure and there's more mm. attention. And, you know, you know, the old adage is everyone chokes. It's just whoever chokes the least wins. <laughs> it, and and that's true. And and you'll see guys who play really well in Australia and they, they, they do really poorly in Q schools overseas because, you know, they start to get nervous about it or they play well on the Corn Ferry and they dominate. And the minute they get out on the PGA Tour, they're terrible. And it's not because they're playing at the same level. They're just not comfortable. And, you know, if you're good enough to win on a Corn Ferry Tour, you're good enough to win on the PGA Tour. But it's just, are you capable of being comfortable enough to play as well as what you play on the Corn Ferry Tour? And that's the difference between being a great player or just being, you know, the flash in the pan on and off tour and all that sort of stuff. It's that fabulous Rotella thing he talks about in uh, Not A Game of Perfect. If you put a piece of 4 by 2 on the ground mm. and ask 50 people to walk across it, nobody falls off. Put it eight feet in the air without a net <laughs> and stand there and catch them. Because mm. suddenly there's, terrifying. You're, you're attaching consequences. You know, when, when people think there's consequences, everything changes and just the simple act of walking becomes more difficult. So hell of a world to live in, professional golf. Um, 
you know, a lot of us envy you guys in some ways, but those who get up close to it see that it's not quite all it's cracked up to be all the time. Let's move on. Let's come to Seven Mile Beach, Matt. I said at the start, 20 years, 10 years actively sort of looking into it. You're from Tasmania, obviously. You're probably Tasmania's best-known golfer, possibly outside your mum, depending who you're talking to. Globally, you're probably better known, but in Australia, it might be it might be uh, neck and neck. When did you first come across yeah, this? I tell you what, it's very difficult when I go and play any of the Australian Opens or stuff at, at some of the clubs. A lot of the, what we used to call the associate members, um, <laughs> would always ask me about mum, whether mum was there, how's she going, is she still playing? She, oh, that's Lindy Goggins' son. Yeah. Lindy Goggins' son. Aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> like, that's right. Yep. She's a fantastic one. I, I interviewed your mum once actually at Royal Hobart where the family have all been members for a long time, a couple of years ago for Golf Link. And I remember for a bit of fun I sort of said to her, we were filming it, and I sort of looked at the honour board and I said, you appear on pretty much all of these, Lindy, but I note that you've never won the C or B grade club championship. <laughs> she didn't think that was particularly funny, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think. She might now. She yeah, made it out that way. No, no, I shouldn't say that, should I? She might she was using your driver at the time that you'd played with in the 2009 Open with Tom Watson. I think she was 71 years old at the time, playing off two. And I said to her, yep. where'd you get these clubs? She said, oh, I don't know. Matt just gives me stuff. And it, was, <laughs> it was your driver <laughs> that you'd used in the 2009 Open. She was using it. Yeah, there. we're not... A- we're not a very sentimental bunch. <laughs> Indeed. Back to Seven Mile Beach. Um, Goggin's obviously a bit of an institution in golf in Tasmania. This, If you were to look at it that way, this might end up being legacy in a way that maybe wasn't thought about before. But when did you first come across this bit of land? What is it at the moment? And how much work was involved in convincing people that as a golf course it would be the best use for what is essentially a community asset, I guess? Yeah, I mean, to begin with, sort of I used to go down there with my grandfather and you know we'd mess around hit balls on the beach and all that sort of stuff and I was always aware that you know there was the the sand dunes and the and the pine trees in there but when I was sort of playing golf a little bit more a few buddies and I would go down there used to be a little takeaway burger joint just random just a house kind of just off from the airport and there's nothing else there but you know instead of getting the ham and cheese sandwich or whatever you get upstairs and having to pull your socks up we'd jump in the car and go and get a hamburger down the road and you could walk out of there and walk onto the beach and onto the dunes and you could see it. And we always talked about how, oh man, I wish Royal Hobart was here. This doesn't make any sense. Royal Hobart should be here. So about, I don't know, 10 years later, I guess, um, and after, you know, Clates had done Barn Boogle and I, when he first came down and showed me pictures of Barn Boogle, I kind of said to him, you should be doing it at Seven Mile Beach. The land's unbelievable and all those sorts of stories. I kind of got to the point where I'm just like, well, why isn't there a golf course there? It just really doesn't make any sense. Like, it, it's basically um, untouched. There's a couple of gates. It, it's You say it's a community asset, but it's actually an dis- environmental disaster zone. There's uh-huh. fallen trees. There's radiata pines, which are basically a weed all over the site. And you can't get in there. You know, it's, oh, it stops okay. there and tracks. And you can't walk or ride a bike down there. It's just, it's, it's untouched. So I started you know, snooping around and looking around like, well, there must be a reason because there's there's no development here at all. Why, why has there never been anything here? It turned out there'd been quite a lot of developments proposed and approved through the years, but um, there was a massive one in the 80s, which was a big Japanese um, real estate company, which was, if you looked at the map, was pretty funny because it had an amusement park, it had a resort golf course, championship golf course, canal development, like all these just you know, a laundry list of Gold Coast in Hobart. Things. 
just, yeah, just, yeah. just whatever, whatever you can imagine. Wholesale destruction. Uh, yeah. And then, and then that all fell in the, you know, in the, in the, in a heap in the mid eighties with the, you know, the, the Japanese stock market crash and all that sort of stuff. So all those sort of companies started pulling out with their sort of, with their global development but it was approved. So I thought, well, obviously, something, well, something happened there. So, um, And then there was another sort of proposal that was more in the middle of the site that, that never got any traction at all. But from what I could tell, the main reason was it's a sand mine, but they hadn't started sand mining. So of the 900 acres or so, there's about, I don't know, 600, maybe, a th- you know, two-thirds of it that is under a mining lease. Mm-hmm. But they hadn't started um, any extraction. So the government was very wary of approving any development in the area because they were concerned that it would impinge on the future ability, I guess, of the mining extraction. So really, more to do with timing, 2009, when I approached the government after looking around and deciding, well, okay, maybe I'll go to them. There was no zoning issue. It was actually zoned recreation. So it was, you're allowed to put a golf course on it. There was no, there was no encumbrances as far as that goes. So I went to the government and said, you know, well, I want to put something outside the sand mine, this, this area of the spit. Um, and, and kind of went from there. And I, and I left all the land that was in the mining lease outside of any potential golf course. And of course they were more agreeable to that. They'd also, around the same time, um, agreed on extraction. So they'd had an area set aside for extraction for the next 25 years. So it sort of all was a, a little bit of fortunate timing as far as that decision had made. And then I'd done enough research. And the best land for the golf is actually outside the sanding mine because the sand mine is very flat. Mm-hmm. And um, even though you could build a cool golf course there, but it's just basically dead flat. Well, a more interesting topography and the crazy dunes and the big ridgeline dune that goes up to 22 meters is outside the mining extraction and the mining lease so that was a sort of the the beginning of it all really all the best golf courses i reckon clates have an interesting and remarkable birth story does not wanting a ham and cheese sandwich and having to pull your socks up and getting a burger instead being the birth story of this golf course fit the narrative nicely for you. You were there at the start of Bamboogle Dunes when the contract got screwed up and thrown in the bin by Richard Sattler. It's not a bad one, is it? Um, yeah, well, you know, when Matt – I think we were playing at Terry Hills, Matt, when you first told me about it and yeah. he, he said, there's this amazing bit of land in Hobart. I'm going to build a golf course on it one day. And that was, you know, 25 years ago, really. So, I mean, the birth story was Matt going down there with his grandfather, who was a bit of a legend in Tasmania. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, the real birth story of actually deciding to do something about it, which will come a little bit full circle considering what's going on at Rosny Golf Club, right? So Rosny Golf Club's the only public course in Hobart. It's an used to be an 18-holer, and pretty much any kid that started golf would have played there. You know, I started playing there. I played school tournaments there when I was really bad at golf. Um, but it's right in the kind of, well, I call it the city, but it's, it's on the other side of the river if, um, if, for the locals down there, they know where it is, but you can get a bus there. You know, it's really easy to get to it was nine holes. It was cheap, you know, 10 bucks around or whatever it is. So in 2009, um, I think the, the guy who was the pro was retiring, right? So the lease was becoming available. So I had my foundation at the time and I was looking at, well, this would be a great opportunity for the foundation. We'll, we'll lease Rosny. 
will be able to provide opportunities and jobs to kids that probably wouldn't necessarily get that opportunity and maybe try and do a Sweetens Cove type thing before Sweetens Cove, anyone was aware of it. But we didn't get the lease, all right? And we thought we were a really good chance. We went, you know, we you know, proposed, you know, a few different things and we thought this is going to be great. But they knocked us back. And the reason they knocked us back was because they didn't want anyone, they were only going to give the lease one time because they had other ideas for their land, which is now sort of come to a front now, I think, with Golf Australia going down there and trying to talk to the local council about, you know, is there an opportunity to, you know, not have the golf the golf course disappear because it's the only public golf course. But anyway, so at the time, I'm just like, stuff this. I'm going to build Seven Mile Beach. That's where it's going to be. And, and that's how it started. That's where I went straight from there, straight down to Seven Mile Beach and started really looking at it. Um, Matt, just looking at the map of Seven Mile Beach on Google Maps, it's this long, like, it looks remarkable. It looks like a golf course should be there. It's this big peninsula that sort of extends out into... Uh, I think the water is Tigerhead Bay. Is that right? Um, yeah, yeah, Tigerhead Bay, Frederick Bay, and, and the lagoons on the other side. And you can see on that side, on that Tigerhead Bay side, there's some sort of rugged-looking dunes, and it's the other side that's more flat. Is that right? Yeah. So there's a ridgeline dune that starts um, about uh, three, two thirds of the way into the site, and it rises up from basically you know one or two meters all the way up to about 20 very quickly and it run, and it, and it divides the site in half yep from in, in a north south so if, so if you go from that ridge line it'll take you from about 18 20 meters um, all the way down to the beachfront and it has different areas where it's up and down while on the back side which we call the five mile beach side um, it, it basically drops straight down to zero meters and then has sort of a little bit more softer, undulations that get up to about six or eight meters so it's not dead flat at all and that runs you out to the five mile beach in a north south way so but as you get to the further east to the bit that looks you know really enticing and cool it's actually really choppy because of the introduction of marram grass i mean marram's just the worst thing for coastal dunes i mean it's all over australia and it got introduced but it, it it aggregates the sand it makes them very steep and choppy and you end up with like really unnatural landforms that you know, you'd have to sort of bulldoze around or soften to actually have golf over there. But because of the pine trees, there's no marum underneath. So all of a sudden, the bigger dunes are actually still quite usable. Well, if you get out to the place where there's no pine trees, they're really choppy and, and pretty unus- unusable. Is that right out on that far point that, that goes out? Yeah. Okay, so... It's, a pl- it's the area where everyone would look and go, oh, wow, it'd be so cool. That's where I'm there. looking. And you go yeah. down there and, and I'm like, I mean... It is. It's like being on the moon. It's it's crazy. <laughs> the land. I don't know what the moon looks like. That's probably a stupid reference, but it seems like it's for a foreign place. You know what I mean? Yeah. And um, yeah. I mean, um, Clates has been down there and had a look around. Like it's it's pretty crazy that far end, isn't it? Well, that was where we first went years ago. But it'd be great for a par three course. But it's not very good for big golf, long golf. But you could put a really fun par three course out there. Mm. Mm-hmm. Which, well, it's the trend of the moment, isn't it? So we, we won't ask whether that's going to happen or not, but certainly seems to be possibly a possibility. What was your take when you first went down there, Clates? Because I imagine that once you're a golf course architect or known to be in that business, people come up to you constantly and say, I've got an amazing piece of land that you could build a golf course on. Now, Matt's probably got a bit more credibility being a fellow tour player. What were you expecting and what did you see when you first went there? I don't know what I was expecting. I, mean, I knew it was going to be good because Matt had said it was good. So he was, I assumed he knew what he was looking at. But 
um, I didn't quite realise how good it was and how much space there was. The thing at Bamboogle was that it was, whilst it was a great bit of land, it was restricted. It was just a, it was a narrow strip between the beach and the farmland, which is what Lengsland is really. So there was really only a couple of ways you could route that golf course, and and it was and it was narrow and long. So there was only so much you could do. But that seven mile beach, because there's so much space, the routing is much trickier. I don't know if we've got the best routing because you would never know if you had the best routing because there are so many potential ways to run golf over that land. But everywhere you looked, it was a great hole. I remember one time Matt and I were down there, we walked. We started on the five-mile side and routed a course going across the site. And there was there were 18 great holes there as well. So it's, you know, it's the old um, Perry Maxwell saying at Prairie Dunes, I think, when he said there are 120 holes here, we just have to get rid of... <laughs> 102 of them. <laughs> 102 of them. And... It's a bit like the site at Sandhills in Nebraska, which is, I mean, there, there are thousands of holes on that site. Corn Crenshaw must have had, I think Ben told me it took them a year to find the first tee. And they found the first hole. And they could have gone in any one of three directions from there. And once they'd picked the second hole out, they could have gone in any one of two directions. Like a spider's web. And once they'd done that, the routing was kind of set. But... You know, I think we've got a really good routing now, but I don't think anyone would ever know if, if it was the absolute best one because there are so many great holes on that side. It's incredible. Oh, you'll get, oh, you'll you get know, plenty I mean, telling like, you where you got it wrong, no doubt, once it's open, Clayton. <laughs> They'll yeah. be coming out of the woodwork all over the place. Yeah, you know, might be an exaggeration, but it, but it's hard to imagine anyone ever having a better site. Pine Valley, maybe. You know, it's, it's such an incredible site for golf. And, of course, the, the phenomenon of the last... 20 years has been Sand Hills and Bandon Dunes, Barn Bugle, Bally Neal, Castle Stewart, um, Nova Scotia, Cabot you know, Links, where all this great golf is remote. And whilst Tasmania is remote in terms of the rest of the world, it's, it's 10 minutes from a international, well, a, certainly a big airport and 25 minutes out of a decent sized city. I mean, all this other stuff is miles from anywhere. Which has been part of the appeal of some of it. Yeah. The, the, the yeah. pilgrimage to get to Bamboo, particularly if you come from the States, which many have, it's a real badge of honour to have made the effort to go all the way to yeah. Bamboogle Dunes. But, but In terms of Australians travelling to uh, Hobart, it's incredibly easy. You know, I mean, it's literally 10 minutes in the airport and a 25-minute drive into the city. So it's a, it's a very accessible golf course and, and an incredible site, really. And almost everyone in Australia has got reciprocal membership with Royal Hobart as well, don't they? That's, is that true? <laughs> that true there, are, no, there are a lot. Of, Royal that, Hobart does have a lot of reciprocal. Is that right? There you go. Oh, didn't, um, didn't realize that. Just, you, you mentioned Pine Valley there, Clates, and obviously there's these pines on this property, but it also looks like it's got some areas where it's just beachy dunes and then also some area that isn't treed at all. Is, is it going to be sort of routed in and out of the pines or are you going to clear them completely or what, what's, the, what's the thinking there? Matt can talk to that a bit as well, but no, we're clearing the pines. In fact, on the other side, Matt, which end is that, the east end or the west end? I can't remember. The, there's a whole lot of Banksia scrub out there, which is actually, I'm assuming, closer to Indigenous than, pine, than radiator pines certainly are. But 
Um, and on the five mile side, it's it's really reminiscent of Sunningdale. It's, it, it's a London Heathland sort of feel about that side. So if you built multiple courses in there, they would they would all have a different feel, I think. Some seriously exciting stuff happening down there in Tasmania, and we'll come back to Matt Goggin and Mike Clayton in just a moment. Now, while we might have to wait two years for the Seven Mile Beach development to be ready to play, you don't have to wait that long to look your best on the golf course, nor do you have to pay full price. Head to thegolfsociety.com.au, our major sponsor here at the Talk and Golf Network. Use the code TG at the checkout and you'll get a 20% discount on some of the best brands in golf. Peter Miller, Jay Lindeberg, Polo Ralph Lauren, Shoes by G4 and Puma, all 20% off using the TG code at checkout. That's thegolfsociety.com.au. Head there today. Now back to Matt Goggin and Mike Clayton. Matt, when that moment came where you realised you've been thinking for 10 years, you know, somebody should build a golf course here, and then the sudden realisation is, well, it's going to have to be me. Were you prepared for that? Of course, the years you're talking about, 2009, you're at the top of the game. You played in the final round on Sunday at the Open that year with Tom Watson, which I know we've talked about before and would have been a a highlight, but you're fully immersed in a tour career. Um, What would possess someone in that position to think, I might think about building a golf course? Maybe it was a bad idea. Maybe it was a bad idea. Maybe it was distracting. Um, yeah, it was interesting. It, it was, it, it just seemed like it should be done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, and no one else seemed to be able to, was going to do it. And it just seemed like such a shame. And, and the success of Barn Bugle Dunes obviously really helped because it enabled me to get in front of, you know, the decision makers and say, look, it can be as successful as Barn Bugle Dunes. And Barn Bugle Dunes has been amazing for local employment, the local economy in an area that was just crushed when the timber industry got, you know, basically crushed, like Scottsdale Mill, it all all closed down. And now the majority of those people have been been employed or, you know, in some way been affected by Barn Bugle June. So you're then able to go because it's crown land and say, look, I've got a use for this, which will be of great community benefit versus just being a dilapidated weed forest management area that is just costing you money like we can turn around and turn this into something that can be great for tourism great for the local economy and great for local employment while at the moment it's just completely underutilized and it's costing you money so yeah i think there's a few things that kind of came together at just the right time my profile probably helped um you know being on tour and doing well probably helped me get into those meetings Mm -hmm. with the decision makers and then you know i was able to to push it along. Yeah. What will be the structure of the facility, mate? What's the what's the plan for who will be able to access it, how you'll access it? And within that community there is there is there sort of some sharing or shared space or access for those who aren't just there for golf? Because obviously the the place is obviously a, a beautiful spot. Not just golfers yeah. who want to be be a part yeah, of it. Yeah, well but um, completely public, public access. Uh, we're actually we want people on site. We want community on site. The moment you can't as I said, you can't get down there. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some horse riders. We want horse riders riding through the site. We want people being able to access more of the beach because there's one little sort of parks office. It has an area where you can park and, but you can't get, you know, it's a good five kilometers to walk to the end of the spit. Well, we'll have a car park. You'll be able to drive down. You'll be able to get a beer or an ice cream if you're at the board, whatever it is. Like the whole, the whole point is to encourage the public 
mm-hmm. to be able to use the site. Well, at the moment, there's a gate there, and you're not basically not allowed on it unless you can walk. Yeah, nobody, nobody can. You've been all around the world, Matt. You've seen good and bad golf developments. What are the things that you've always liked? What's appealed to you in golf developments that you've seen around the place that you'll be putting into practice here at Seven Mile Beach? Well, I mean, to me, you know, Lynx Golf, whenever I go and play golf in Scotland and, you know, the UK or, or wherever you are, it, it always felt right. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like you'd get there, you know, there's always a British Open qualifier or you're going to play in the British Open, you get off the plane, you'd rush to the course. As soon as you walked out there and looked around, you're just like, oh, yeah, this is, this is what it's supposed to be like. Mm-hmm. And no other golf feels like that. I mean, even playing golf in Australia. There is something that just is about connected to the water, connected to the local town and the local community and the people wandering around and just the sort of the really low-key feel you get on even some of the more exclusive clubs in the UK, really. But that sort of low-key feel where everyone feels like, you know, they have part ownership of the place and can wander around and enjoy it and enjoy the facilities, that's really what I like and that's what I would hope we could be able to achieve down at um, down at Seven Mile Beach. It's an interesting not not the sort of private, yeah, that's right, exclusive, locked or off. high end feel. <laughs> Even though right. that is, look, we all love it. Like we all love staying at a beautiful resort and being pampered and, and whatever. Like like who doesn't? But it doesn't feel like golf to me. It's not the essence of the golf, is it? It's it's the trappings that are around it. A lot of that sort yeah. of stuff. That's and I a- guess it's growing. Like Australia, well, growing up in Tassie and playing golf was cheap. It wasn't like a, an out of reach. It was like 80 bucks to be a member at Royal Hobart. Um, there's nine holers all over the place. And um, I think we have more nine-hole golf courses per capita than any other part of Australia. And they cost nothing to play. And they're crazy fun, silly golf courses. I mean, none of them are any good, but they're, just, they're, they're entertaining in their own right. But it was never, n- never felt exclusive, right? It only ever felt exclusive when even a place like Royal Hobart didn't necessarily feel that exclusive compared to, you know, Royal Melbourne. Where you're just nervous, you know, walking in. <laughs> in yes. You know, when I was a kid, and like go over there, I just feel like, ooh, better not walk in the wrong door here. Um, it didn't feel very approachable. Well, growing up in Tassie, it felt very approachable. So I'd be really disappointed if people didn't feel the same way I felt um, as as golf being a really approachable sport and not an elitist sport, because I think that's. Absolute rubbish. Going to Metro and taking a divot for the first time, Matt. Yeah. <laughs> Just yeah. Walking on the grass, you feel bad, let alone cutting a bit out of it. Adrian, a, a, some, a lot of the stuff Matt says there I think is really important, touches on stuff that's kind of golf-related but kind of not in that. You step onto the Lynx courses in Scotland. I know you know, having been to St. at the old course. That's, there's something true about it, isn't it, that's hard to articulate. Golf belongs in those places, and therefore when you're there, you belong – in that place as well. So much golf doesn't do that, does it? No, that's right. I mean, and Clates can speak to this very well, but the evolution of golf from the links inland is a contortion of the sport, the, the way it adapted to inland and, and the, the way design evolved. And, and obviously it was, you know, Alistair McKenzie who did a lot of those initial sort of inland courses in, in the UK, um, which set the template for what was attempted to be done overseas and and now we've got this massive distortion of that original concept with the US courses that we see on TV every week and it was actually refreshing to see 
a more natural looking golf course on TV this weekend with Rosebud, Rosebud. Yeah. Um, where you know it was just it was wide and it was unfussy. The you know the fairways just sort of brown relatable out. golf wasn't it? Yeah, they're, everybody's they're, playing a golf course. Be- like Rosebud. Be- look, the beautiful yeah. playing surfaces, all nice, beautiful cooch, but then it just sort of. Like burnt out at the edges, and the greens looked firm and fast, and the ball was running for miles on the fairways, and it looked fantastic. And it, it raises a question in this discussion, which I'm keen to hit on, which is you've got a lot of great courses like Rosebud, which are you know, Rosebud could potentially you know take it from what it is right now to do what Peninsula Kingswood did, for example. Um, and right next door to Seven Mile Beach, you've got you know, Tasmania Golf Club and Royal Hobart and Laherne, which are all in great locations. They're not nearly as good a location as Seven Mile Beach, but they're on very good land. When you're out in those properties, they feel like good pieces of land. They're good golfing territory, but those courses aren't. And they're, they're excellent courses, Tasmania and Royal Hobart in particular, but they're not necessarily elevated up as great as they could be. And you wonder why we just can't get our act together to put more resources into those existing properties that we've got in golf and make them better golf, like Matt was talking about with Rosny. Um, you know, there, there's going to be lost. I hadn't heard about that, Matt, but this is a theme we bang on here about good, good all the time is public golf is really under pressure and really in danger in a lot of places. I mean, Moore Park here in Sydney might be the busiest golf course in Australia, and there's a very serious and dedicated campaign to cut it to nine holes. One of the things that Logue's talking about there with that was something we talked about last week, the ethics of building new golf when we've already got yeah. such a supply of golf that is not yet what it could be. Um, I don't know that that necessarily touches on this discussion. It sounds like Seven Mile Beach should be a golf course. Yeah. But, Clades, did you have any thoughts about it? You probably listened to that last week and no doubt. I, I, I did listen to it, and Adrian, it was nice to reference a few of the golf courses that we've touched over the years. And someone asked Ben Crenshaw once, he said, Ben, what's the most important thing about golf course design? And he expected some answer about the, the strategy of the bunkering or the greens. He said, the money. And... It's true that the problem with the place like Tasmania Golf Club, which could be so much better than it is, is no one can afford to do what's needed to fix it up. So, and I, I Matt would know as better than I, but it's a struggling club, I assume, that, that doesn't have the finances needed to make that a better golf course. So what do you do? Do you sentence Hobart to the best two courses in Hobart being ranked sort of somewhere around 80 in Australia? Or do you build a golf course that the day it opens is going to be in the top five? Well, clearly, if you want to make golf better, the way to do it is get the money, which is goes back to Crenshaw's thing, find a great bit of land and build a great golf course because it's never going to happen at the other two places because the members are either going to be reluctant to change or there's never going to be the money or the will to do, you know, to do something great. So you know, Hobart is sentenced to having, you know, kind of, without being rude, pretty average golf. And Australian cities deserve better than that. And I think the future of golf is great golf courses. Now, if everyone started off playing golf at Royal Melbourne, everyone would play golf. But you can't do that, clearly. And public golf's got a really important part to play. I mean, the the public course I started playing on when I was a kid was looking – I mean, I thought it was great, but looking back, I mean, I haven't played there for 50 years, but it wasn't very good, But which is why Rosny's important. But – you know, a city like Hobart should have great golf. And if you've got the potential to have one of the best five courses in Australia, then you've got to build it. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, to me, that's a much better use of resources than going and 
trying to take Tasmania Golf Club or Royal Hobart from 80 in Australia to 35 in Australia or 40, 40 maybe. Yeah. Why not just go and build number two in Australia? And you can make the case of a rising, in this case especially, I think a rising tide lifts all boats well, and yeah, people yeah. go to play Seven Mile Beach and Tasmania and Royal Hobart become great excursions um, on an off day and then you can also travel further afield and take that drive up to up to but port. Also, and- I think... Uh, I think there's also a question of is consolidation a bad thing if the result of consolidation is you're building golf courses where they're supposed to be and not where they shouldn't be. Yeah, that's exactly right. So so yeah, the question for this is never going to happen, but why wouldn't you just have all the golf in Hobart at Seven Mile Beach, build four golf courses out there and everyone plays out there. That's where everyone plays golf. Because from Kingston Beach to Royal Hobart is not that onerous to drive. It seems like a long way if you live in Hobart. But, I mean, the National is one of the most successful clubs in Australia and most of the members live an hour and 20 minutes away. Mm, yeah, so right. driving from the other side of Hobart across the bridge to Seven Mile Beach to play golf that good, wow. Is it, you know, is it that much of an imposition to ask people to do that? Yeah. It gives the breathalysers like a choke point to sit and get everybody coming back from golf. <laughs> exactly. Well. One yeah. road in, one road out. <laughs> That's right. Right. Very easy. Up there every Saturday afternoon. Yeah, very easy to to uh, to con- control it all. Which brings us neatly to an interesting sort of question, Matt. I don't know whether – do you give a lot of thought to this golf as part of community idea? I guess it's when you live in the bubble of professional tour golf – Golf is very different, isn't it, to what most people experience golf recreationally on a week-to-week basis, club members and that sort of thing. Is it the sort of thing that you give much thought? I imagine most tour players don't. And how do you see Seven Mile Beach fitting into that? You've clearly got a community-minded uh, notion there with, with the access to the place. But what about the role of golf itself within communities? That seems to be – we don't have what you described in Scotland. We've got a real animosity yeah, towards it's golf. it's interesting because as a – uh, yeah, I'm jealous, actually, of a lot of people who just love golf. Do you know what I mean? I have a lot of buddies, and all they want to do is get out and play golf. All they're thinking about is playing golf. And I think after playing on tour for a long time, the social aspect of golf, you lose a little bit because it's, it, it's always work and, and not in a, you know, works hard, as in it just you have a different mindset and and it's very hard to switch it off and just enjoy golf because you're always really – thinking about, well, how am I playing? What do I need to get better at? I need to improve this. You're always working on getting better because you know everyone else is. So um, there are so many people who just, when you you sort of lose that as as a professional. So so when you're younger, so when I remember younger, just going out there and the ability to play on a Friday afternoon in a chicken run and and it was goggin, goggin, goggin and goggin (laughs) on the teacher's. And it was my grandfather driving a cart, and then we'd all play nine holes, and you'd go in, and it'd be the chicken run, and then we'd have dinner at the club. wouldn't cost anything. It'd be a few bucks playing the comp and all that sort of stuff. That was, you know, families don't do that. And I think golf is amazing. You can go and play. Like, I got introduced to golf really through my grandfather, right? Not necessarily my mum. Not many sports, you, you, you go out there and you're playing with your grandfather when you're, you know. 13, 14 years old, spending your day with your grandfather outside playing golf. So I think that that is lost a little bit. And when people think about golf is that the ability to play with anybody at any level and have a great day is unique to golf. And you can't do it in a lot of other sports. And uh, you're out in nature. And it's, you know, I mean, 
you can't undersell that. No. And we, we've got an international audience, so I just better explain what a chicken a chicken run <laughs> the chicken run it's a uniquely australian idea and a beautiful one. i think it is uniquely australian isn't it just after after school or after work you can just run out to the course and have nine holes and the pro shop would normally put the competition on and you would literally could win a chicken a chicken like a, a chicken that you yeah, take, home take, take home and roast yeah. that that night <laughs> that's exactly right fantastic <laughs> i never really thought about it it's a brilliantly beautiful sort of idea one of the things we talk about a lot here matt in this notion of golf and community and the broader community we of course all understand those things that you've just laid out about golf how do we get that message across because non-golfers don't see that about golf are we just doing a terrible job at at selling the realities of golf and can Somebody like yourself with a bit of profile and a development like this, there's an opportunity there to talk to non-golfers, is there not? Yeah, I mean, I, I think for I think for a lot of people, it's actually being taken out there. You know what I mean? It, it's it's you know it's it's your grand going out there with a few mates or having someone say, "Let's go and play golf," and you borrow your you know the the old set from your grandmother or whatever it is was in the family who actually played golf, and then and that's sort of how people get hooked. I think opening up facilities to public, I think allowing, I think, you know, the whole open day once a month where you just let people go out and wander around. Mm. Just, you know, there's no golf, but you can just be on site and actually get to experience what it feels like to be on a golf course. Because I also think just there's that fear, you know, St. Andrews is amazing. Like you turn around the corner um, out of the town and then you look and there it is. And then you, and to be able to walk across that, even as a non-golfer, I imagine is, is really cool. So I think sometimes we all get a little bit protective of our spaces and thinking that, you know, having people walk across the green or walk in the bunkers is just going to be a disaster. But I think it would be interesting to actually let people go and wander around Royal Melbourne or Metropolitan and, and just in, and get on site. And that might perk their interest about like, well, what is this game? What do these guys do? This looks pretty cool out here. These, these greens are smooth, blah, 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 whatever it is. I think that's sort of a good stepping stone into um, getting people out on the course. And then, you know, you get one person hooked, generally the kids, they'll drag other people out. And, um, you know, and, and that's how a lot of people get introduced through the, to the game, through the kids taking an interest, so they take it up. Indeed. Hook, so, and hooked you know, is the right word. ways to do it. But yeah, I think hooked is the right Royal word. I know Royal Labite used to do a really good job, funnily enough, is they would have junior clinics and there's no dress code. It was, you know, four hours on a Saturday afternoon, drop your kids off. If you've played golf, good. If you don't have any clubs, doesn't matter. Just come out and we'll take care of you on the range. And they'd set up on the range and they'd take the place over and a few members would grumble, but a lot of kids got introduced to golf through that. Just lost half our listeners with the no dress code <laughs> thing and just letting people go all wander across, willy wander willy. across the course. You've put the Clayton yeah. take the fences down target on your own back there, Matt. That's on you. That's your own fault. Uh, Clates has worn it for a while, so now you can uh, you can join. There's a lot of important stuff in there, though, isn't there, Clates? You started – nobody in your family, I don't think, played golf, did they? You started, I think, as a caddy. You were, you were mercenary from the start. You were always going to be a professional. It was about oh, the money, yeah. wasn't it? Caddying. No, my dad played, and my, my – and my, my uncle, my grandfather's brother, was a club champion at, R- at Riversdale. Oh, okay. Well, so he was a good player. Pedigree. But, um, I thought it was interesting this week they announced the partnership with the RNA and Niall Horan of uh, mm-hmm. Modest Management and One Direction fame. You know, Huggy wrote that article because uh, my wife made him write it. <laughs> about, And they uh, say he stays at your place rent-free. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Ricky Fowler's got 1.5 million Twitter followers, which is a big deal. So he's got access to 
he can tell 1.5 million kids that golf's a cool game and they probably think it is anyway. Noel Horan's got 45 million Twitter followers, most of whom I assume are young women who follow him because he's a pop star. And he's telling all them that golf's a great game. So that's a really good initiative, I think. You know, but, but the hardest demographic for golf to get is young women who just think it's a game for lazy, fat old men, which is kind of not really true. But but it's easy to find examples of, isn't it, Clayton? That's absolutely. The you know, that, they look through the fence and that's what you see everywhere. It's so why would I want to play that game? Well, it's such a I – mean, I mean, we're preaching to the converter, but it's such a cool game to play. But but it's difficult. But if you can get – you know, Noel Horan's 45 million Twitter followers, if, if you could get 0.5% of them playing golf, that would be a massive start. It was an interesting announcement, wasn't it? But I, I couldn't really parse out of that their mission statement. It just seemed very vague and hand-wavy. Tap into huge audience that we can't otherwise get to. It, There's the mission statement. Yeah, exactly. Exa- yeah. I get that, but it was it was seemed just to be a bit of a stretch and not very well structured, but we'll see yeah. what comes of it, I, I think. But, I mean, I mean, I mean, Niles' Twitter's kind of, you know, he's preaching golf to people who think it's a game for fat old men. Mm-hmm. So that's a great start. I'm not sure what the RNA can do to help that, but... They should, if they can use that well, it's going to be an incredible asset he, to golf. He's clearly, in terms of capturing or, or getting the game out to that demographic, he's way more important than Ricky Fowler. Yeah. I, just to correct you, Clates, I think you've got to pronounce his agency modest because it ends, in, okay. ends in an exclamation mark. Really? Yeah. I'm not convinced by that. No. That's just me. I'll take you uh, – when it comes to the Nordic languages, I'll take your advice because you've been there more than I, but I'm not convinced about the – It's got an exclamation, exclamation mark. Exclamation mark on the end of Modest. What's the time frame, Matt, for uh, going forwards? I know things aren't can't be, you know, nominated date. We're going to start on 3 March. What are you hoping for in terms of 7 Mile Beach and when it might be ready for people to come down and actually peg up a golf ball? Yeah, well, the the schedule is sort of a little bit, you know, COVID has obviously ruined a lot of schedules the last 12 months, but um, tree removal and sort of getting the site ready for the the golf course construction team to come in um, sort of uh, during up until mid-year, and then hopefully the guys will be on site um, towards the, you know, second half of the year, and then probably two years from then, I would imagine, 18 months. So what's that? 2023? 2023, yeah. Yeah. It's exciting stuff, isn't it? And it really will make Tasmania, everything kind of south mm-hmm. of moment, it really creates a golf mecca, doesn't it, Matt? And those things can be really important because rising tides in golf really do lift all boats. Golfers will go to a place that's got four golf courses before they'll go to a place that's only got one, won't they? Yeah. And, and you start to, you know – become the the main yeah. place that people come to play golf. So instead, instead of even going to Queensland, they might be like, well, we'll just go to Queensland to go to the beach. We're not going up there to go play those resort courses when we can go down to Tassie. So if they're looking for a golf trip, you know, they'll probably be coming down down to Tassie. And, you know, the Tasmanian economy has just exploded with tourism. It's been one of the main growth drivers down there with Mona and, and you know, some really good restaurants and really good experiences. And we're hoping that, you know, we'll add another experience that will get people coming from, you know, interstate and internationally. I mean, you know, the, the main visitors to Barnburg are mostly Victorians in New South Wales and we'll be hoping that they'll extend their trips or will come down. And But the benefit will be for other businesses in Hobart 
other tourism yeah. operators or restaurants and hotels because Bridport's a little bit, you know, it's very, it's isolated and the benefit is isolated yeah. to just sort of bar and bugle dunes. It's not like people go and do other things. Well, I think we're a little bit differently positioned to, you know, have an impact where people will go to the museum or they'll go to Richmond or, you know, sample some of the whiskies and, and do all that sort of stuff because it's just much more accessible out of Seven Mile Beach than it is out of Bridport. Indeed. Of course, the criticism of Barnboogle Dunes, if there is one, has always been that, that sort of once you're there, you're a captive audience. There's not a whole lot else around the golf course for others to do. So it's not been a great couples destination, for example, where you might find, you know, husband or wife yeah. plays golf, both go to the destination, one goes off for the day and does one thing and one goes to play golf. You don't get a lot of that at Barnboogle Dunes, but certainly at Hobart for Seven Mile Beach, that's a, that brings a, that market much more into play, uh, I suspect. Yeah, and obviously for the success of Barnboogle Dunes, being able to capture the market and mm-hmm. have every dollar spent spent on site is huge to actually for the success of it. And that's, where you, that's why you've been able to have Lost Farm built and the hotel and then also, you know, Boogle Run. I mean, if... if if they weren't as successful, I'm not sure you would have had a second golf course. So there's, you know, there's there's some pros and cons to that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I'd say we we would probably um, more likely have uh, the opportunity for you know couples to come down and, as you say, you know, play some golf, but then also enjoy some of the other stuff in Hobart. While you know, I guess um, Barnboogle can be a little bit more of a a boys' trip place sometimes. I, I just want to mention as well, we've got Arm End under development in uh, Hobart as well, which is, you know, another exciting development there on a remarkable piece of land. They're in the similar process, I think. Like, I think they have, um, they've got to get their their water, they've got a sort of a pipeline coming under the river and across, which, you know, that has taken a little bit of time for them to get all organised. But I think their, their timing, from what I hear, is not dissimilar to ours. So it could be pretty exciting down there. Yeah, yeah. It's been a number, number of years in the making as well, isn't it? And on another remarkable peninsula of land, like the, both of those properties are a little bit like Port Marnock in Dublin, you know, like this incredible peninsula that's keep completely you feel like you're completely separated from the city but you you're actually only just you know a short drive from yeah. from a big, big yeah. cbd Stunning. yeah well i mean, it's a little further away it's probably about an hour out of the city but um but it's sort of snap you know it's plonked right in the middle of the derwent so you just look straight up and down the river so it's very very pretty yeah yeah indeed and a affordable public access golf once these two are finished tasmania's going to have a case for Perhaps globally, Matt, most affordable series of world-class public access golf you've been around. First of all, Australian golfers don't know how good they've got it and how cheap golf actually is here. Yeah. We think 100 bucks is an expensive green fee. Well, you spent a lot of time in America and could disabuse people of that notion pretty quickly. Yeah, so, so even what would be considered affordable in peak season, you're not getting a round of golf for under $250 yeah. US. And that's on, you know, and that that's it. Like if you go to Pinehurst, you're getting around three hundred. If you're doing um Bandon, you know, I think you so so Bandon's in the two fifty, two seventy five yeah. range. But then you've got to tack on a hotel, yep. you know, and all their sort of extras. So it's not it's not not a, it's not cheap, but it's cheaper than or more affordable than some of the memberships to play a course of that quality, which is not only they're almost impossible to get. The you know the joining fees and the monthly fees are incredibly expensive. Staggering. So, I think so Bandon is considered really affordable, even uh, at two hundred seventy-five dollars around. Around. I think I did the calculations for Pebble Beach once, and to guarantee a tea time, you had to stay on site. The cheapest room from memory Correct. was about five hundred bucks a night, and I think the green fee was four hundred. Mm-hmm. There's a thousand US to guarantee guarantee yourself a tea time at Pebble Beach. 
plus whatever yeah, dinner costume tips. Yeah, yeah. yeah, indeed. So uh, those of us who live here in Australia should be very thankful at sort of the affordable golf. I've got two more questions for you, Matt, before we let you go because we've kept you longer than we should have already. Uh, why did you pick CDP for the design? Nepotism. Is that all it is? Yeah. Yeah. Mates rates? Yeah, yeah of course. Well, no, it goes back to knowing Clates for so long, really. Um, I was actually just texting with Clates the other day. The, um, I was going back through all my old emails, and I noticed the first time I emailed Clates was in uh, December 2010. Um, and it was to, you know, Mike Clayton Golf. And I didn't get a response. And it was because... At that time, it became Ogilvy Clayton. <laughs> so I didn't get a response for like two months. And then uh, it might have been like February. I'm like, hey, Clates, you know, I've got this. I sent him some pictures, um, but it was to his right email. And he responded the next day. Actually, he responded that afternoon because yeah. I sent him some pictures. And then they came down two weeks later. So Clates has been there from day one so i know he's sort of gone through oc occm and now cdp but um yeah it was more that relationship with clates the fact that i trusted him from the get-go um and you know he's been involved and that just seemed like the right thing to do and also being involved in barn bugle dunes which was so successful and devries you know cape wickham it seems like you know these guys obviously know what they're doing um, the fact that uh, Mike DeVries um, is still shaping himself, that's a huge factor, I feel like, because he's going to be there. Uh-huh. And it's not just going to be coming down every now and again and, and telling the shapers what to do. He's going to have a, a hand on the whole thing, and, and that was um, that was important too. So it seemed like a bit of a no-brainer to me. I'll come back with the second question after us. This is close. It is encouraging to know that Mike will be there in a bulldozer as opposed to the map spread out on the front of the four-wheel drive and pointing for the camera, which is, tends to be the golf course architect. Look. <laughs> yeah. Clates, what's the uh, from internally from CDP? How is this going to unfold? Uh, Mike DeVries is going to be a part of. It. I know he's walked the property with you. Who'll uh, be doing the actual construction? What's going on? And what are you doing there at your house? <laughs> oh, that's um, it's my sister opening the muesli. Um, that's right. Um, yeah, Mike came down for we had a week down there. So Matt and Mike and I walked the property for a week and rerouted the original golf course, which was I think has made it better. Uh, in fact, Mike and I were talking about this morning. It's the last sort of job you want a contractor to do because contractors want to go quickly, mm-hmm. and it's the sort of job you want to go slowly out with because you make sure you don't want to trash all that microundulation that's so important down there. So Mike is great at that. You know, we'll put together a, a small construction team, but it's critical to have someone who's as good as Mike, who cares about something as much as he does on the bulldozer and building stuff himself. Because you know, because if you draw the plan and give it to a contractor, they, they won't, they wouldn't wreck it. But it's never going to be as good as if you build it yourself, and that's really been the, you know, a major part of what's happened in golf course architecture in the last twenty years. Is Gil Hans and all Tom Doug's guys and Corn Crenshaw and Mike, and um, they build their own stuff, which is really important. And I think that's the. That's why we've seen so many great golf courses done in the last 20 years. Yeah, because it's adaptable, isn't it? From up on the seat of the bulldozer, you can see things you can't see from a topographic map or just from walking the property. You go, oh, hang on a minute. Yeah. This is something we didn't notice. We could really make a great feature out of this, and you go ahead and do it right there yeah. on the spot. And, yeah, and you're not building anything to a plan. There is no plan. You know, th- th- There's a routing map, and we know roughly where the first tee is and the second tee is and the fifth green, and 
you know, it's a matter of just getting out there and building it as you go, really. Yeah, indeed. Last question for Matt. Um, what's the state of your golf? Completely away from Seven Mile Beach. Um, yeah. What's uh, what's going on with Matt Goggin and golf, professional golf? Have you hung him up or are you just waiting it out for COVID to disappear? What's uh, what's going on with you and your play? Yeah, I, I was I – was, um, definitely much keener um pre-covid like covid sort of like really slowed things down um, it's not a lot of fun traveling and doing monday qualifiers and stuff over here not cheap either but, is it just quietly <laughs> is the other thing a year of chasing spots in tournaments doesn't uh, come free that's for sure yeah yeah all that sort of stuff yeah i mean it's not cheap and all that sort of stuff but but um i really love playing comp- com- competitive golf like i really miss it I would really love to be able to do it, but you know, just because you want to do it doesn't mean <laughs> it's going to happen. You know, there's a lot of it's. You know, you have to be playing well enough, and you know, I'd love to get back into it. Um, it's certainly not something I've you know walked away from. That's for sure. Good. I'm glad um, to hear it because you're too good a player to be lost to the game still. And I know you've had your ups and downs with the golf, but my goodness, you can. Uh, you can yeah, play and I the feel physically time. pretty good. Yep. You know, I mean, I had some, I had wrist surgery, and then sort of had a uh, a problem with my back with um, a herniated disc, which you know, I, I kind of went twenty years without anything, and then had basically two years where I couldn't play. So that you know, set me behind the eight ball as you're getting older. But no, I, I would love to play. It's really would love to do it. Yeah, well, just absence makes the gr- the heart grow fonder. You kind of you don't know what you got till it's gone and all that sort of stuff. Having it taken away sometimes can be a bit of a an inspiration. Of course, your daughter now was she beating you yet? She couldn't be beating you, but my goodness, must be getting uh, close. Uh, my daughter? Do- uh, no, you mean my niece? Sorry, your niece. My, sorry, your niece. My, my niece, my daughter. Yeah, no, my daughter doesn't play golf. She uh-huh. runs, but I try and run with her. But she sort <laughs> of jogs at about a seven minute mile, and I'm just absolutely getting destroyed. And she's <laughs> yeah, just no looking hope. at me yeah, like, yes. what's going on? <laughs> So, yeah, but uh, no, uh, no. Hallie's really good. I mean, mm. Clates can probably talk to that, but mm. um, yeah, she um, state team. She just kept getting better and better. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I caddied for her in the Master of the Amateurs a month ago, and she's a amazing driver and a great iron player, and the worst wedge player I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> Horrendously bad. I mean, El- Elvis is probably the one of the best wedge players from a hundred yards. Unbelievable. He just stiffs it a lot of the time. So if she could play wedges like Elvis, she'd be the best player in the world right now. So that's what she's got to learn. She's 17. She's got to learn to hit decent wedge shots, and she'll be great. I mean, she just rips it off the tee, great iron shots, uh, good temperament. Uh, she's just got to learn to hit a wedge, and she'll be flying. Wow. Apart from me and Logan, is there anybody you haven't caddied for? <laughs> have you been on the bag for Matt at some point? You must have done, I imagine. No, okay for Matt. No, I've caddied for a few. Yeah, you have. Curtis, yeah. Okay, for Curtis Luck and Sue O. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, Julian Sue, yeah. Well, I started off as a caddy. I'm going to finish up as a caddy by the look of it. Have you, have you taken him to many wins, Clates? How many? Oh, easy. Just because <laughs> oh, yeah, he well, gave I... Sue the wrong club uh, at the Vic Open that year. We can let him forget that now. Yeah, I lost the Vic Open with Sue. I caddied for Tony Gresham when he won the French Amateur. Wow, okay. I caddied for John Kelly when he won the Australian Amateur. I caddied for Louise Bryars when she won the she, In fact, she beat Lindy's mum in a great match at Huntingdale. She had no right beating her because she wasn't anywhere near as good, but... She beat her on the 37th hole. 
Um, I finished second with Robbie McNaughton in the Wills Masters to David Graham. Okay, you're just, brag- right, you're just bragging. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> second with second with Elvis Smiley in the Rosebud Invitational. Yeah, so, Enough. Um, Been fabulous to catch up with you both. Uh, Matt, as I said, congratulations. It's a fantastic achievement to, I mean, goodness, goodness me, to build a golf course is just something truly out there. So well done to you, mate, and enjoy the ride from here. You've done most of the really hard work, and now it's the fun stuff, as you said. So best of luck with it. Thanks for taking some time to chat to us today, mate. Thanks, gentlemen. Enjoyed it. Yeah. Clates, always good to chat to you, my friend. Thank you for taking some time, despite no doubt late celebrations last night after a fabulous weekend on Elvis's bag. Yeah, it was good fun. Thanks, Rod. We'll um we'll be up at Bonnie Doon in a few weeks, hopefully, for the whatever they call it. Is it the New South Wales Open? Is that what it no, is? No, it's, it's the, the TPS series. TPS New South Wales. Yeah. The Open's two weeks in the month. Yeah. Two or three weeks after that. So we'll absolutely be catching up because Logan and I have already talked about getting out to Bonnie Doon to watch the player series. So that's going to be fantastic. Good to have you along today, Logan, as well. Thank you very much for that. Thanks very much, Rob. Episode 62 in the books. Episode 63 next week. We look forward to your company then. Then.